Our next guest is a professor of psychology emerita at the University of Notre Dame and in 2020 was identified as one of the top 2% scientists in the world. She is an award-winning author and a founder of educational research project, The Evolved Nest Initiative, which we'll be delving into shortly. Today, we're talking about wellness-informed pathways versus the trauma-induced sync pathways, the importance of connecting with the natural world, and the healing power of play. A big warm welcome into the virtual worthy studio, Dasha Nyabais. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and it's so good to see you again in person. Um, we first crossed paths in Seattle many years ago at a conference we spoke at. And um, it really informed my practices and just felt like it really opened my perspective to, to so much more within my own practices and how I can convey these theories of creating these nurturing environments that a nest is. And it's just a beautiful illustration and so accessible. I'm so glad. <laughs> um, as we start today, I think it would be important to just define some terms so we're all talking about the same thing because when we start to delve into the realm of trauma, uh, the definition of trauma could be so different to so many people. So just so we're on the same page, could you start by giving us the definition of trauma in relation to the trauma-inducing pathway? Well, trauma, in my view, is is something that happens when your basic needs have not been met and mm. when you're uh, you've been abused perhaps and so you're traumatized right uh, yeah. and that's something you carry with you unless you have some healing uh, practice or healing event occur so for our species trauma uh, what I look at in terms of the evolved nest is when we don't provide the evolved nest to children but actually we all need it throughout our lives, but especially important for children because they're still developing. The younger, the more malleable and the less developed they are and the more uh, impact experience has on them. So not meeting the basic needs through the nest provision is traumatic. And there's then degrees of how traumatic and what, what's affected uh, we, we think it's normal to have children that are disagreeable and have tantrums and adults who are self-centered and, and aggressive. We think that's normal, but that's all to me signals of trauma that it not, has not been resolved, that's just been carried forward. That's rocking me already. <laughs> um, and the observation when I start to have, you have conversations around trauma, a lot of the default is around bigger events like an abuse or an accident or things like this but you mentioned the basic needs they're not being met so would that be kind of like a maslow's hierarchy of like shelter and then social connection from those basic needs definition i have a broader list of basic needs than those yeah. but even let's go though, let's do it well <laughs> so let's just take uh, maslow's list you know yes. babies need all of it at once there's no hierarchy mm. There's no waiting for it. Babies need to feel safe, need to feel love, need to feel esteemed, need to, need to uh, be able to self-actualize, to grow their uniqueness, to unfold as, as they're developmentally prepared to do. But they need the support system that the Evolved Nest provides in order to do that. Otherwise, they have to shut down and they, have their, they are in trauma. They kind of have to brace and, and things get this uh, disorganized, dysregulated, and the wrong trajectory is taken. And that nervous system is fully activated and at that frequency. Multiple uh, systems of the body have to yeah. setting their parameters, how they're going to work, their thresholds, how they're going to be triggered in early life based on experience. Babies cannot self-regulate. That's a myth. Mm. They are co-regulated by their caregivers, by the experiences they're having. And uh, it's very visceral. It's, uh, you know, in the gut that they have yeah. to feel that co-regulation. And that's part of the vagus nerve, which is the 10th cranial nerve. It runs through to all the major systems of the body. And it needs to be grown and nurtured uh, into well-functioning uh, habitual ways of being. 
But when babies are left alone or left to cry, you are undermining that development and many other systems like oxytocin system and, and so on. And um, when it comes to, we've mentioned it a few times, and in the evolved nest. So could you give the broader um, understanding of that so our listeners can kind of relate to what we're talking about there? Sure. The evolved nest for our species is a set of practices that actually came through the tree of life. Uh, many other animals have very similar uh, nests, and mm. many of the practices are now uh, estimated to be around 70 million years old. That means they evolved to a fixation, meaning that they worked so well every generation after kept the same practices. And it's only in the last few thousand years, especially a few hundred, especially a few decades of years in the, in the human communities, we've undermined that nest. Uh, but the nest is, is set up uh, to match the maturational schedule of the young and provide what's needed as they grow and unfold. And our species, our babies are born so immature. We're like fetuses until mm -hmm. about 18 months of age. We have, you know, our brain, the, the skull doesn't fuse until, you know, around 18 months, meaning it's yeah. expecting to grow big. And the way you grow big is you provide the nest. And then what's the nest? Well, it's soothing birth uh, gestational practices. The mother's calm and supported. Birth is soothing. Breastfeeding on request for several years. Lots of affectionate touch and caring, pretty much never alone. That baby's never left alone, never left in distress. So responsive care, multiple responsive caregivers. So not, it's not just mom, not just mom and dad. Yeah. And then there's uh, a welcoming social climate. Everyone loves the baby. They feel like they belong. They have a positive impact and, and they're just integrated into the community. Free play, self-directed free play, really important. Uh, with uh, multiple age playmates. Then there's also um, nature immersion and nature connection and routine healing practices. Because we all kind of get uh, off balance in our relationships or in our ourselves, our bodies even, and we need to have ways to get back and into the center of our, our being. And a beautiful illustration in those early years that really painted a picture for me is that external womb being essential for the children at that age. It's like, it's not arrive and then you get into all these books around, what's it called, that term? Um, controlled crying, is it? <laughs> yeah. And things right. like that. But the science, you're, as you understand it, and I'm talking to the scientists behind it, it's, it's not conducive to the well-being. No, so cry it out. Sleep training, I know it's yeah. quite popular in, or pushed a lot in, in Australia. Yeah. Uh, it's very damaging in all sorts of ways to the child. Um, but parents are desperate because, at least in our country, in the USA, parents don't have parental leave. Mothers have to go back to work after six weeks, and they're yeah. desperate to you know figure out how to get through the night because babies aren't intended to sleep through the night. None of us mm. sleep through the night. We wake up periodically, and somehow we think babies should be independent and sleep alone. That's the opposite of what babies need. And so you're seeding anxiety and depression, all sorts of uh, brain aspects that's, that are supposed to be growing, and you've now pulled the rug out. you yeah. got a gap there. You're, you're not growing the good stuff. You're growing the <gasps> self-protective, yeah. traumatized, you know, uh, feeling of an abyss if you leave a baby alone it's like they're in hell they're in pain yeah. they're alone they don't know anything's going to change it's forever and so for mm. the rest of their life that's been really imprinted on them the rest of their life they're avoiding that feeling they're going to brace against anything that makes them suddenly feel insecure you know like yeah. someone from a different culture or someone with yeah. a different opinion that's how it's getting in our country uh and so then no you know, you have to exterminate that person. You have to get rid of them mm. because otherwise you're going to fall into the abyss again. So yeah. this stuff is all related to how the culture works, how people get along with one another or they don't very well or they get they stay in their own little group because they yeah. can't take the stress because their stress response system has just been triggered to be immediately um, activated. And they don't have all the other skills that would normally develop if you were nurturing the child with the mm. evolved nest. 
it's it seems to me like it's like you're activating the abandonment reflex at like that really really young age That's so right. then you're not having that security to be able to deal with challenges from an informed uh, response instead you're going and you're living a life in a reactive state and then you of look like, for oh, that's some, different. Yeah, and you look for some remedy, right? So yes. an external remedy, either it's a belief system, in particular, or a drug, or some practice sex, maybe, and you get addicted to yeah. things because you can't, you don't have the centering capacity in yourself because you never went through yeah. all this co-regulation stuff, and you're just out there, and you're yeah, like in the wind, and you latch onto this addictive thing, and oh, that works for a while, but then gets you into trouble. Yeah. And from an activation point and from from my lens, I'm looking at um, navigating play a lot and um, working with educators a lot. And what I'm seeing more and more is the children going like gravitating towards those external gratifications, um, the approval from their teachers, um, the accomplishment of the goals that have been set for other people and the avoidance of the types of activity where they have to challenge themselves. Right. Yeah. Is that reflective of what you see in the science? Yeah, yeah well, that, this is how I would interpret it, is they have not had the playful experiences from day one. Babies under natural conditions are ready to play and interact from the beginning. Yes. And they expect that. And then if there's nobody there, if uh, the parent, the caregiver is out somewhere else or they're in a daycare setting with people are too busy to pay attention, they just all that all that uh, stuff that's ready to grow just sort of, you know, fades away in time. The sensitive periods for growing certain things. Yeah. pass. we can't do experiments to know exactly when a baby's going through which kind of sensitive period. Mm. But you can see the results. They're going to be, you know lonely and sad and depressed and we can see it even in babies a week old babies who are not breastfed show signs of depression and they're less self-regulated mm. and that breaks my heart um obviously there's a big stigma around like breastfeeding and not looking negatively on people that can't uh, aren't choose not to breastfeed but you're saying from the science standpoint it's like it's an essential um, activation of their physiology. Is that right? Right. Breast milk is just this magic elixir. It's got thousands of ingredients. It's tailored for that baby at that moment because the saliva of the baby is telling the mother's body what to produce, what antibody mm. is needed for an infectious agent, whether it's a boy or a girl uh, or whatever. And mm. uh, so the and whether the baby's growing fast or not, the different kinds of milks are produced. And, yeah. and then it's also um, uh, uh, formulating or forming the vagus nerve. The, the vagus nerve is running here in the breast milk and the, the forceful feeding that breast uh, feeding requires is now training up that vagus nerve. And vagus nerve is something that helps calm you down when it's well-functioning, helps you become uh, intimate and cooperative with others and compassionate and when it's not functioning well you have all sorts of you can have brain seizures or irritable bowel or if it's not you know because it runs through all the major systems so uh the yeah. whole body is being shaped by the nest and breastfeeding yeah. is a really important thing in our ancestral context 99 percent of our history was spent in for nomadic foraging communities That's yes six million years worth of those and they still exist the mother uh, isn't always the only one breastfeeding. Other women in the community would breastfeed. Uh, and the baby's being passed around and, and uh, being uh, skin on skin and all sorts of people. And so they're learning to be flexible and know how to you know, interact with all these different smells and different people. And uh, it's such a different experience for our kids who are alone with a mother, <laughs> isolated mm -hmm. in the home. Their bottle feeding just pours the milk down their throat uh, doesn't uh, build the jaw, and so we have all these jaw problems now. Uh, people have yeah. problems from that, and the orthodontist, orthodontry is needed because uh, anyway. So it's really essential, but there are yeah. ways, you know, to do things like having milk banks or wet nurses and things that, of providing the breast milk for those who cannot do it, which is a very yeah. small number. Mm. And. Um, that links, you were talking about that community and the, the old thing that takes a village to raise a child is 
is how we've evolved through that. Um, I, I recall watching one of your clips on your website, evolvedness.org, and it was the cycle, break the cycle. And you were saying it, we've come from this community and compassion model to, I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> I can explain. Framing, but I'd love to hand that to you to explain, because that was really daunting to see that timeline. And we've done it this way for so long. And then in this recent time, it's like this tiny slither where we've completely changed. It's a great, right. great illustration. Yeah. So if that's, you're referring to our little six minute movie called yes. Breaking the Cycle. Yeah. You can get it at, uh, see it at breakingthecyclefilm.org. Uh, but we contrast two cycles. Right now we're in that trauma-inducing cycle. We call it the cycle of competitive detachment, where yes. the young, uh, the basic needs of the young are not met, and they're undercared for then, and that leads to neurobiology and sociality and all the aspects of being human that are underdeveloped. And so you end up with adults who are kind of sickly, not, they don't become very wise, and then they continue this cycle with building a culture that's based on, you know, being overwhelmed and controlling or, or neglectful and just uh, dysregulation everywhere. Uh, but that, that's not our history. That's, our, that's only recently. That's just gotten worse over the 20th century and the last few hundred years with weird ideas going around in Western culture that got pushed all over the world. I could say more about that, but so our, our six million year old um, pathways, the wellness informed pathway, mm. which fosters uh, cooperative companionship. So you provide for the basic needs through the evolved nest, create a well-functioning neurobiology and sociality and morality. And then the adults are well and wise and they uh, mm. keep this cycle going with a, a community that provides for basic needs. And that um, competitive detachment is like such a, accurate summary of so many social interactions we see in community these days. And when you look at the schooling model, when you look at the community model, it is completely that competitive detachment in and the media the, and everything you absorb. And the family, it starts in the family. The parents mm. are told, yes, you must control your baby, make them sleep alone, or you're going to spoil them, which is the opposite of what the science yeah. shows. Uh, but they then detach from their baby and then they're competitive. It's like, are you going to be in control of your child or is that child going to be in control of you? As if it's a contest, right? Instead yes. of the nurturing companionship, the friendship that that uh, parents should be providing their children to unfold yeah. themselves. Yeah. And I can't help but when, when you're delving into this, being a father myself, I can't help but put this lens over my own own family and reflect on their own experiences. Um, as I've said many times, I'm just because I'm involved with working with children and play doesn't make me a perfect parent whatsoever. Um, I've got a lot of work to do. Um, but a bit of context of the challenge we're working through at the moment, um, my son's transitioned to school and he's having those, I think, um, the non-compliant re reaction to school. Um, and it's trying to reframe to the school that it's like he's trying to work through his safety, security and the un unsafe reflex of this. And he's like, obviously, it's been some trauma. He was um, in an early childhood centre with the same group of friends for a long time. And now he's moved to a big school and his friends didn't go to that school. Um, so reframe. So when a child has gone through this traumatic experience, significant as we frame it or minor, in the in the spectrum um how do we start to support these children from the what does the science say behind supporting your child well, through that's a trauma? Good question because it matters how old the child is and what the situation yeah. is it's hard to make a general mm. statement um only that the child needs to feel that they are safe as you're saying mm. right and um yeah, it's really, you know, boys need a lot more nurturing and a lot more of the nest than girls because they have less built-in resilience. So they uh, they need longer time to be home and not being in school and longer time playing, want more cuddling, <laughs> everything, more of that um, because they mature more slowly than girls too. Yeah. Uh, so it's really, it's hard to say. Um, 
some blankets uh, recommendation. Forging ahead and unpacking this, and I'm sure they will unpack and roll out as we go through. Um, another consideration within the childhood experience that in recent times has changed dramatically is the sensory inputs from understanding the world around them. For a very long time, we've had like a very nature-based sensory input into our bodies to understand the world around us. And now we have such high levels of light, sound, um, the diversity in touch. Um, is that, and the science behind that is pushing towards, you, you mentioned earlier, those the natural, the power of nature and the natural nature immersion. So what role does nature play in creating that well-being? Yeah, that's, uh, I think there are more and more studies about this now. So we know that when you're out in the natural world, it has more complexity, not just grass, <laughs> a lawn yeah. and grass, right? But a forest or, you know, a complicated garden, I suppose, of uh, a lot of different colors and sizes and shapes, that it's very calming to your body. Mm -hmm. It centers you. We know that if you lie on the earth, it earthing that also calms you down so lowering cortisol which is a stress or a mobilization hormone uh, so we know those kinds of things uh, the other thing that's really important from our ancestral context is to feel connected right so we did an experiment uh, a few years ago uh, with undergraduate students college students and the experimental condition they were randomly assigned to half of the students uh, was one we called ecological attachment. We were trying to increase their sense of connection to the natural world. And they came in and did a pretest. Then they got assigned and they read some stuff. They read a, you know, the, an essay about how important it is, the nature connection, uh, the facts about it and a poem. And then they were given a whole bunch of uh, uh, activities and they were told to pick 21 activities in little slips and they took those with them and over the next three weeks they picked out one a day to do so for a college campus you can do a lot of things so pay attention to the clouds today acknowledge the trees as you walk by you know so they're supposed to do this all day each thing and then they came back and did a post test and we found that that uh, experimental group did increase in ecological attachment. So we were trying to nudge them over mm. to paying attention, right? Where's your attention going? Yeah. It's so critical for who you are as a human being. What you focus on is shaping your mind, is shaping uh, your actions. If you, you know, think about revenge, revenge, because you're so mad at somebody, then there's an opportunity to take revenge. You're more likely to do it because you've been yeah. thinking and thinking about it, right? And so your attention is really important to make sure that you are focused on beautiful things, on positive things, on the, the um, connections that you have and your you know, responsibilities to the web of life that you're in. Because we're all on a, like a spider, we're on a web and everything we do is affecting everyone around us and everything, that spider, that tree, that river, that, you know, everything we are um, matters and attention is really key to who we are because our mindsets, when we shift into fear, Someone, if we listen to, uh, in our country, talk radio, and they're telling you, be mad at this person. Oh, there's Nazis here and yeah. there and everywhere. And it puts you in the fearful mindset, which, you know, uh, increases your stress response, which, which shifts the blood flow away from your higher order thinking, away from being open-hearted and flexible, which is intelligence, yeah. and to bracing and your vision shifts into what can I do to protect myself? Oh, there's a stick. Right. Yeah. And so your your mindset is shaped by where you put your attention. And that means your auditory attention, your visual attention, whatever you're, you know, thinking about. Uh, so yeah. it's really important. And it seems like the, the alternative to not being open and having that perspective and connection is what it comes down to. That's so you just described all the symptoms of anxiety, which we're seeing a huge climb of anxiety and mental health challenges in every age in our country yeah yeah we've seen some research i pulled from american data like the first six months of COVID, there was an 11 percent increase in mental health challenges in zero to five year olds like that's and um was it 36 percent increase in mental health challenges in the first year of COVID in america it's it's 
scary stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and it reminds me of the um, the work I've heard of Andrew Huberman around the eyes. The eyes actually when it's when you're in that base of stress because your eyes are so heavily linked to your brain, it actually narrows and tightens your vision. So you've actually got tunnel vision when you're in stress. That's right. So the act of getting out in nature and just pulling that perspective out, you're working from your eyes back to your brain to say, hey, it's okay. Yeah. And that comes down to that relationship, isn't it? Um, that relationship and in a perfect world would go back to relating as environment would be nice and not seeing. And what I love about that and what the science says, it's not these huge acts of grandeur. It's not like, hey, go open a community garden. Hey, it's not start composting. Everyone has to have a worm farm. And what I'm hearing is just like, just bring your attention to what matters. Bring your attention to where you are right now. What's yeah. what, what's alive around you? And, and the Native American tradition would say everything is alive, right? The mm. plastic is actually part of the earth too, right? It comes from fossil fuels from our ancestors. Uh, the paper, everything is is vibrating from the at the quantum level, right? You're not mm. alone. Uh, but if it's you know that's too much, then find the tree, the plant. Have a house plant. I always welcome a spider. When I see a spider, I say, hello, how good to see you. <laughs> because they're so hard to see, find anymore, right? The yeah. insects are disappearing on us because of the way we're treating the earth. Within bringing our, um, supporting our children to to bring their attention to certain things, how do we support our children and in, in from that nest realm? Yeah, it, in terms of the nature connection? Yes. Yeah, there, there's a good book Richard Louvre has called Vitamin N. Yes. <laughs> right? What, 500 activities to do outside? <laughs> yeah. So that's, uh, you know, there's a lot of things you can do. If you need ideas, there's a lot of websites too. Yeah. Uh, what what uh, I did with my uh, my students, we were supposed to actually play with kindergartners and, and do nature connection stuff, and then yeah. COVID hit. We were supposed mm. to be meeting them outside and being uh, for class time. And so they had to do it. They all went home. So some to Singapore, Colombia, Bogota, Colombia, uh, and elsewhere around the USA. And mm. so they read the vitamin N and in small groups decided to, which uh, activities to show the kids in a video. So they made videos about it. Right. They, you know, they grew seeds in the kitchen. There's one mm. one of the girls was in a, an apartment. She couldn't leave her apartment in Bogota, and but they had a balcony. She found a bird's nest in the in the balcony, and then she did a, a seeds growing, you know, in a plastic bag. Yeah, wow. <laughs> There's lots of things you can do. Absolutely. Um, to shift gears slightly, one thing that comes to mind as I go into the nest theory and looking at the activation from that brain-body connection and comparing that to the current state of a common childhood experience, we're seeing a growth in the percentage of children that are deemed neurodivergent children, like children on the autism spectrum. Is there any science around our current climate contributing to that and how we're raising our children contributing to that or the types of experience they're having in the womb that directly correlate with having neurodivergent tendencies? Uh, it's a complicated question because it autism, is. for example, is an outcome variable that has lots of causes. Mm. So <clears throat> there, there are uh, genes sometimes that don't get turned on properly. Yeah. Some people have suspected the Pitocin, which is a labor inducement drug, uh, that it keeps the oxytocin level flowing constantly, which is not naturalistic during birth. It's supposed to come yeah. in waves. And so it floods the mom and floods the baby. Maybe that has something to do with it. It's unclear. They can't do experiments, really, you know, on yeah. kids, anyway, on uh, human babies. <clears throat> and then um, there's so many toxins now in the food supply. Glyphosate, um, Roundup, uh, yeah. it is now everywhere. It's in the air. And it has uh, uh, consequences after, uh, get worse generation by generation. Mm. So there's some evidence that that's increasing autism it's just it's skyrocketing yeah. across generations 
uh, and then there'll, there'll be other factors like that. Uh, so it's just, it's very sad. <laughs> yeah, I, I was, I came across an article and it's, and I don't know the science behind it, um, but they were saying the highest concentration in the food chain of Roundup was found in mother's milk, in oh. breast milk. Wow. Which is, which is full on. Wow. Obviously we're involved a lot with the social play aspects and that's um, one of the nine steps of the evolvedness theory. So can we delve into that, your definition and understanding of um, self-directed social play as an integral part for that well-being? That's right. Yeah, so that's one of the nine components. It's uh, self-directed, meaning that adults have not structured it with a sport activity, for example, right? Mm. So it's not organized by adults. Okay, so that's self-directed is the kids are organizing it. And yeah. the socialness is with other people and best outside climbing trees and wrestling mm. on the ground or, you know, uh, exploring the, the creek or whatever. Uh, so that it's not, uh, well, what it allows for is the child to test themselves and test their relationship. So if you're wrestling, you have to be careful not to be too aggressive, as we can see when pets, you know, or cat, kittens or dogs, you know, are playing. And then one of them will go, ah! you know, like that's too yeah. hard of a bite, right? And if you don't listen to your partner who's telling you signaling that's too much, that partner is not going to play with you anymore, right? Yeah. So we know that this back and forthness of play, the, especially the physical play, uh, is is turning genes on and off. But it's also guiding you in in uh, how to control your emotions and your act actions and following consequences. So executive function skills, your yeah. leadership skills, your emotion, emotional intelligence, your social intelligence, all being built by play. It's the best thing in the world. I say if you've uh, been under nurtured and undernourished and undercared for as and you're an adult now, go find a young child and play with them because it's going to grow your right hemisphere. Your right hemisphere will grow throughout life if you have to be in the moment w reacting to someone else that you learn to be flexible and it's growing all the good stuff, the empathy, the higher consciousness, the self-regulation. Yeah, and from the science, when it comes to restructuring that, we know we're familiar with the, the neuroplasticity. Um, how, how available is that for all people within restructuring or engaging in types of activity, activities that can restructure the brain and move beyond trauma? Well, I think uh, the, the older you get, the harder it is. Yeah. So, especially malleable in those first five years that's when it's supposed to be very malleable. the kids are kind of in a hypnotic state and they're just learning from being immersed in whatever the activity is so you yeah. want them to be in whole body experiences not sitting in a chair memorizing some letters or filling out a worksheet that's the absolute opposite thing that's a good way to get them depressed later <laughs> because yeah. they're undermining their right hemisphere development which is about collecting from information and knowledge and know-how from real life embodied experience. That's right hemisphere stuff. Uh, the sitting there with this worksheet is left brain. It's left hemisphere. It's the conscious mind, you know, learning all this stuff. You're ready for that when you're like 12, yeah. <laughs> 13. That's when that kicks in. You really want to do it then. Yeah. You know, kids should be playing the rest of the time through until age 12, most of the time of their life, you know, and they get so intelligent and so wide, yeah. but they get harder to control in a system that wants everyone under their thumb to go to the factory or to, to the job and do things nine to five or, or sit still, you know, all the stuff we expect in an industrialized technological society yeah. is not promoted by letting kids play generally. Yeah. <clears throat> what about if you were to see, like there was, you see a very young child and they are gravitating towards like, I'm going to do these worksheets and they what what's the thoughts on that because it's it's contradictory to what the natural course would be to like go play have freedom um, solve problems explore so what would be happening there is it like a people-pleasing thing or what's going on 
Well, so I've gonna... seen a number of children doing that, like resort to, hey, I'm going to do this worksheet really well. Do they have another option? Of it? Yeah. I mean, okay, True. so I, part of the thing is they're modeling, right? They, they're, uh, they observe others and they do what others are doing. So yeah. they see people, they see their parents sitting in front of the computer all the time, they're going to want to do that. They yeah. see people writing on paper, they're going to want to do that. Uh, yeah. And so to, to remedy that, they need to be pulled out and uh, outside into some fun spaces with some fun people. And yeah. a puppy, a dog really helps, right? Who wants yeah. to play uh, so that they, oh, wake up out of that kind of trance into adult-like behavior. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's, that's, that's a real, real picture of what they're actually swaying towards there. When it comes to healing and developing that confidence through that self-directed play, and I'll actually take a step back. Like, I love how in that term, it's actually highlighted that it is self-directed, not so, and it's social play. It's not just a stamp of a play because then it's very broad and left up to, to definitions of, well, they can play on an iPad, they can play this. But when you get into that term of self-directed and social, um, what impact on the brain would the alternative have? Non-self-directed uh, play. Uh, you mean sports activities? Yeah. Well, that's good or, for or, or, or screens as well. Like, screens, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, what you're missing is that interactive, uh, social reading the face of your partner, reading their emotions by the way they move their body, uh, predicting how they're going to move so you can do another move if you're you know whatever it is you're dancing or you're wrestling. Uh, so you're missing all that with this kind of flat screen um, or uh, sports activities would be you don't have much choice, right? You're being told what to do. It's all external yeah. controls. So there's not a lot of internal uh, kind of uh, learning that you do uh, a little bit, but not as much as if you have to create the games yourself. Yeah. Um, what's going to be the long-term impacts of a generation that uh, experiences structured very structured outcome focused childhood experience. I'm not sure we know. At least there, as long as they're getting some play, structure play, that's good. Mm. There's Stuart Brown, who was uh, the head of the Institute of Play in the United States, has said he has, um, I think, postulated that what was common to when he was doing this some years ago, uh, what was common to serial killers was that they never played in childhood. Yes. So, I, I mean, that's pretty, you heard that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's, um, there was research into the Texas University um, shooter yeah. that was very specific in, and detailed in breaking down his childhood experience. And if he was exposed to play, he would develop the skills and emotional regulation to be deal with life stresses without extreme reflex to it. Um, and he came from a very strict household where it was like chores, not play, academics, homeschooled, and then it was like, hey, go out into the world, go to university. And he just couldn't, did not learn any skills whatsoever um, from dealing with stress. Yeah, or and, social and, skills, yeah. Or social skills, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and yeah, it's come up. We'll have to save that one for another episode. Delve into serial killers. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is taking a left turn. It's great. I love a quote of yours, and I've shared it with many people. And then first reflexes to, oh wow, okay. Or some people are like I've got to write that down. And the quote is, "Our greatest asset is our attention." Now, as you say, our greatest asset, your brain instantly goes to, oh, it's time, because we've heard that so many times. But that slight reframing of our greatest asset is our attention. Can you unpack that for us and how you you got to there? Because you've got a very science background. And what I love about what you do, it's very obviously science-based, it's evidence-based, but the way you transfer that into the heart 
And it actually does come back to the heart and the science. The science is that it's about a heart. It's not clinical and it's, it's holistic as well. So how did you end up on that? Well, we know from science that a lot of our behavior and a lot of the way we move through life is uh, unconscious, con unconsciously controlled, right? It's mm. recognizing patterns and then reacting and then, you know, just getting into habits. The one thing that we do have free will about is our attention. We can choose where we put our attention. Now, there are all those people out there that are trying to manipulate our attention. So we have to know that and be uh, attention savvy, <laughs> literate, mm -hmm. I guess. Uh, so that's really the the center of being, um, of, of guiding your own life is mm -hmm. to take up that power. It's a power you have. Now, everything else is impinging on you. You've got all these uh, subconscious beliefs and habits from your early childhood before you had words and verbal capacities to understand it. That's that. Perhaps you had that abyss experience and you're haunted by this abyss always over your shoulder. And so you're always running away from that and trying mm -hmm. to find a safe space. But you still have a choice. You can, you know, face that abyss if you're <laughs> with a counselor or some other technique and realize in this moment you are fine and you are safe right here. Mm. Uh, and you yeah. are whole. You are alive. You are connected. And your attention can be right here on how beautiful this is, right? How beautiful it is to be alive. Uh, so you do have a choice. You you can focus your attention on the past and get all worried, you know, and depressed about, oh, I should have done mm. this or that. Or on the future, I'm, I'm get all anxious about what might happen. Uh, but right here, you can put your attention now and just feeling how, you know, wonderful it is to be in a body, you mm. know, <laughs> the beauty yeah. around you. Find what's beautiful and put your attention there. Yeah, that gratitude, I'm hearing that as an underlying tone there. Like your right. attention in gratitude will give you, can directly contribute to that, It's where the attention flows. Yes, and I, it, part of what, for Native Americans, for Indigenous peoples, it's gratitude for the all the lives keeping you alive, right? So when you sit down to eat, gratitude for this animal that gave you some of its life, for this potato who gave you its life, you know, for everything, the water, magical fluid of the earth, right? Yeah. Be grateful right now. Mm. So mindful, gratitude, and attention all go, kind of go together. <laughs> yeah. Um it pops into mind the quote of uh, the big uh, Tony Robbins is is always going on about where your focus goes, your energy flows. Uh -huh. <laughs> yep, right. Just a thought: um, is anxiety the result of ill-focused attention? Well, it can be, but you can be anxious because you're dysregulated somehow in some systems. Um, physiologically or emotionally? Yeah, physiologically, emotionally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you then there is really an imp nervous. Your panic system kicks in. Uh, you maybe you you know get to have a panic attack, maybe because yeah. what happened when you were a baby. Yeah. So we have to equally look after our emotional state in conjunction with our um, physiological state. Right. It's all connected. So yeah. that's part of my work is to show that you we're not just beings, you know, in our heads, you know, and that's unfortunately most of the university disciplines focus there. It's like it's all about reasoning and will, you know, and, you know, making a good decision and then willing yourself to do it. And it's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's neurobiological. Attachment is neurobiological. Your parents are engraving on your brain the way they treat you is the way you're understanding how the world works, right? And you carry it with you the rest of your life unless you have some healing experiences. <clears throat> and we have to remember then that our whole body is is with us, <laughs> not just yes. the little head, you know, that we think the conscious mind. That's the left brain. I don't know if you know Master uh, and his emissary by uh, Ian McGilchrist, but he talks about all the research on left and right brain. It shows how the left brain always thinks it's in charge, you know, and poo-poos everything else which is actually where everything's happening uh, yeah. and, and so but we our system in the west has emphasized that has promoted that and so it, it leads to all this ill-being 
Was there any event in particular or a certain point in time we can say due to that, that is where we've created that switch over? It's actually complicated. There's a lot of different factors and it happened over a slow period of time. There's yeah. something about um, climate change, which they yeah. had a big population in the past. They were nomadic foragers, but then uh, they had all these people and they couldn't feed them. And so they, or some people, you know, planted something or they, uh, you yeah. know, they got afraid nature wasn't going to provide. So we better do this. And it was, but it's mm. so hard to be a farmer. It's the worst thing, you know, yeah. uh, compared to foraging. Uh, yeah. And then the other another theories is about herding animals, that herding animals, the, the males got into that and then they got into inequality, farming, uh, you know, some people accumulated more inequality and then yeah. you go into inequality, you've got a hierarchy and then you're undermining the care of the young is what ends yeah. up happening because everyone has to work to keep the system and the, hap the elites at the top happy. We're kind yeah. of there <laughs> still. Mm. Yeah. It reminds me of a book, um, Surviving as a Hunter in a Farmer's World. And um, that's in reflection of like the ADHD and ADD evolution. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. And they're saying, well, that neuro neurotype is um, remnants of the hunter gene. And then they go through the history of the development of agricultural nations and like things like Japan having very early agriculture and how they've moved to a very lineal structured culture and how it's contributed to that mindset lineal and opposed to hunter gatherers, which yeah. tend to be so non-lineal or more fluid and changeable and aware of environment, more right. That's brained. right. Yep. Yep. Um, so that that's, I'd recommend that book. I'll put it in the show notes. It's fantastic. Yeah, and yeah. we'll also, um, all books and references that were made today, we'll have them in the show notes for our listeners to go through as well. Good. Yes, I think uh, I've written a paper called The Missing Mind and contrast our capacities with those in the foraging communities because they, yeah. they have diffuse attention. They know what's going, they're kind of ob observing all around them. And what mm. we do to our kids is we make them focus in on one thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> we don't want that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there's other skills and, and capacities that we're, we neglect. Yes. How do we support healing? Well, I think uh, telling people that their instincts to be compassionate towards children are right. <laughs> mm. Especially those new parents or the future parents. You know, you can't spoil a baby. Nope, impossible. You can ruin a baby by neglecting them, mm. <laughs> by following yeah. these rules about, you know, making them sleep alone or something. Remember, it takes 18 months for them to actually look like a, a newborn of another animal. So give them that external womb experience for at least that long. It, it should be, yeah. you know, three years at least, really, being keeping them yeah. calm while their brain is growing so fast. Yeah. And uh, I yeah. think it's important to highlight that when we talk about create nurturing, it doesn't mean protecting right and and shielding them from challenge no because right? through challenges where that that's where the self-governed um type of play comes they will naturally seek challenge to develop an understanding Correct. of themselves the world yes. around them. so i don't want our listeners to think well i've got to protect our child and protect them wholly from this womb no you what you want to maintain is the connection they want to feel like you're there with them that's the thing yeah. that's important. And then when they're ready to move off, they move. They'll be happy to move off and do their own thing. And you have to let them go and let yes. them wander and, and put the toddlers in places where they can wander around and you don't have to say no. Yes. You don't want to be, be imposing your will on them when they're testing their autonomy you know, and who they're going to be. <laughs> yeah. So absolutely. This is one thing I would have to try to re-teach educators is like it's okay if they're trying to do something and they can't do it yet don't be there saying now pull with your arms push with your yeah. legs put your foot here you can pull yourself up no, no. I've had, out of the I've, way <laughs> yes i've seen experiences where um it's been like three months and more before a child could actually fulfill like one of the elements in a play environment of ours but the sense of accomplishment I was fortunate enough to be there when he achieved it after months and that sense of accomplishment and joy that that child got could not be recreated in any type of direction from an adult. Uh, just think they carry that forward. I can do it. 
I have the yeah. capacity, you know, self-efficacy, right? So for the next yeah. challenge, they have some confidence already built in. Absolutely. And they've learned from that physiological state and it's done that head-heart connection for them. So when they come up against a similar challenge or something, it even falls out of that realm. It might be a social interaction. The physiology said, well, you overcome your challenge last time. You can do this again. It's okay. Mm -hmm. And they're yeah. not escalating into the adrenaline stages of the flight, fight or faint response. They're actually going, okay, I can negotiate this. And then they're going to be managing their dopamine response opposed to their adrenaline slavehood if you will mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah they don't break down in, in fear or run away and yeah and what can our listeners do what's your thought what do you want our listeners to know about supporting children the most important thing is to stand out of the way uh, babies need a lot of it's almost like you need to helicopter a baby but only to mm. keep them in a calm state Keep them in yeah. a, you know, you have to figure out how to do that with each child, right? But it's a lot mm -hmm. of touching and moving and calming and being with them all the time physically. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, they're going to unfold. They're going to be like a butterfly and let that child follow their inner, their inner spirit, whatever that mm -hmm. is, and encourage yeah. them and offer them uh, what's needed. But then let them be in charge. It's mm -hmm. a hard one, isn't it? For parents to hear, <laughs> yeah. let your child be in charge and they're like, what? How am I meant to control that? Where can people um, find you? I've mentioned evolvenest.org. Breaking the cycle Breaking the cycle film. Dot org. Brilliant. And where can they find your books and blogs? Uh, well, Amazon will have them. Uh, my website, darshanarvais.com. I know it's hard to spell. Uh, uh, kindred... It'll be in the show notes. Okay, good. Hit the link. Media, kindredmedia.org. There's a lot of things there that are really Fantastic. Well, thank you so much con for contributing directly to my journey in supporting children and creating environments for them to thrive and really being that, holding that place of wisdom in conjunction with compassion in this space. It's so necessary and needed and that it doesn't need to be a band-aid fix. It right. needs it needs it needs to be the hug and reassurance. That's right. And we can so, do it from the heart. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And we can lead with our heart. It doesn't yes. need to be our head. Right. Um, so thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for giving me the personal reminder as a father, as an advocate for children where to lead from. Um, so I appreciate the work you do and I really look forward to chatting to you more. And getting to do some, maybe do some research and data collection with each other as well. Well, thanks so much, Lucas, for having me. It's been a great pleasure. And thank you for all you're doing for families and kids.